Our scripture this morning is taken from the gospel according to Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made to flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. The renowned theologian, Bob Seeger, (laughs) who played with the Silver Bullet Band, one of the classic Detroit City rockers, who also played in my high school when I was a kid, made it to the top of the charts in 1978 with a song called Hollywood Nights. It's about a Midwestern boy who's tired of living at home and wants to go find himself out west, see some old friends, good for the soul. He ends up in Los Angeles, and before long, he finds himself charmed by the big city nights and the high rolling hills and the attractiveness of a certain young woman. All of it exerts its seductive power on the young man to the point, Seeger says, that he knew he was too far from home. He was too far from home. The boy gives in to all of it and lives the high life for a time until one morning he wakes up alone the air out of the balloon. And now he wonders if he can ever go back home. He was too far from home. Jesus told a story once about a boy, a good Jewish boy, who decides he wants to leave home and find himself. He demands from his father an advance on the inheritance, and he leaves with his share of the family fortune. And Jesus says he made his way to the far country a far country, a, a country when you're, where you're far from home. And before he knows it, the economy goes south. There are no jobs to be found. He has already spent his money and the family fortune on wine, women, and song. Inflation is high. And he ends up, this good Jewish boy, in a pig trough feeding pigs and wishing he could eat as good as the pigs. 
And then, as Jesus tells it, there comes this moment when he realizes where he is. He's, he's in a pig trough. He, 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 he thinks the pigs have it better than him. And at one point, and finally at the point where he comes to himself, he realizes that he's too far from home. Serving on the Board of Trustees of my alma mater, Westminster College, I sit on the Student Experience Committee of the college. And every year we hear, and this is true at any college, every year we hear when the first year students arrive that there will be a handful or more who will arrive at college and will find themselves too far from home. Some will exhibit their too far from homeness and homesickness. They miss the hometown, the friends, the family. Others will exhibit their too far from homeness by doing just about everything that mom and dad told them not to do. Majoring, as they say, in extracurricular activities. They are too far from home. It's human nature, I suppose. Go back to the beginning, and the writer of Genesis tells us that in our creation, we human beings bore the particular image of God. We had the likeness of God implanted into our DNA. Every human, said Pascal, has a God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled with God. God, in other words, puts his homing device into us. We are restless, said Augustine, until we find our rest in thee. God is our home. God is our North Star. But the story goes, we have a penchant for the far country, the distant land, the untethered existence where we can be our own person. So, so out we go in a million ways. We go out in our careers and business and pleasure and scholarly pursuits and social networking and chasing the American dream. Out we go, and before we know it, we've gone too far from home. John Dean was recently interviewed on the 50th anniversary of Watergate and recounts how at an early age, 31 years old, he ascended to the upper echelons, the higher altitudes of the government of the most powerful country in the world, White House counsel, 31 years old. I didn't know how to balance my checkbook at 31. And before he knew it, there he was. And before he knew it, swept away from any moral upbringing he had ever received. And before he knew it, as he puts it, I crossed over the line. Vulnerable, impressionable, and found himself in the pigsty, too far from home. Jesus went too far from home once. He did it right after his baptism. He did it because the Spirit told him to do it, perhaps to embrace his full humanity. Jesus went out into the wilderness, the dry and barren land east of Jerusalem, west of the Jordan River, far from the temple, far from the synagogue, far from his community of rabbis, far from his family, far from his study of Torah. Jesus was out in the wilderness all by himself, and having fasted 40 days, Matthew tells us, he was famished, he was depleted, and he had come to his weak moment. That's what happens when you get too far from home. You eventually come to your weak moment. Jesus was in his weak moment. The weak moment is when you forget about home. The weak moment is when your homing device starts to lose its signal. The weak moment is when God, the God-shaped vacuum feels just like a hole in your soul into which you will pour just about anything. So the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to have his weak moment. 
because it is in the weak moment when the devil arrives. And we know what that's about. I'm not thinking about some guy in a red getup with horns and pitchfork. I'm talking about that feeling we get when we have reached our limit and beyond. That, that feeling when we get, that we get when we are overwhelmed or exhausted or famished. The devil comes when we get distracted. The devil comes when we get stressed. The devil comes when we get busy. The devil comes when we get angry. The devil comes when we get too full of ourselves. The devil comes when we get bored. The devil comes when we get alone. The devil comes when we get to our weak moment and we don't even know we've gotten to our weak moment. That happens, right? We cross the line and we didn't even know we crossed it. We wake up one day and we say, how did I get here? And we say, what, what got into me? Oh, I'm just not myself. I don't know who I am anymore. Jesus is in his weak moment. And that's why he's tempted. Jesus is tempted because Jesus is weak. Jesus is human, Jesus is flesh, Jesus is hungry, and he's tempted. And the devil tempts Jesus with three things. He tempts Jesus first to turn the stones of the wilderness into loaves of bread to feed his hunger. He tempts Jesus, secondly, to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in order to prove his divinity. And he third tempts Jesus with the kingdoms of the world if he will just bow down and worship the devil. Now, these are somewhat fantastical temptations, not ones that you and I are used to. But at their core, they are the most human of all temptations. The temptation to indulge ourselves, to turn stones into bread, the temptation to prove ourselves, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, and the temptation to give up on ourselves, sell our souls, the temptation to indulge ourselves, the temptation to prove ourselves, and the temptation to give up on ourselves. Interesting, isn't it, that when the devil begins to tempt Jesus, he starts with something rather benign, turn the stones into bread. No harm done. If you're famished with hunger, it seems a logical thing to do. Indulge your hunger. Satisfy your thirst. Forget what the hunger's about. Don't pay attention to why you're hungry. Just indulge your hunger. Remember in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Edmund, the little boy, encounters the white witch and she sees that he's hungry, so she offers him a favorite English candy called Turkish Delight, and he devours the first piece, but the first piece makes him hungry for the next piece, and the next piece makes him hungry for the next piece, a version of Lay's potato chips. <laughs> Until all of a sudden, he's in the witch's grasp. So the devil comes to people like you and me and sees what we're hungry for, sees that we've got the God-shaped vacuum, and doesn't want us to wonder about what we're hungry for, doesn't want us to remember how far from home we are. He just says, turn the stones into bread. You're hungry for God, but stones will do. So we indulge in stones. 
We indulge in things, we indulge in stuff, we indulge in what's on sale, we indulge in Amazon, we indulge in credit cards, we indulge in mortgages and bank statements and fashionable clothes and fancy diets. We turn these stones into bread and we devour them and soon we're hungry again. Just look in your closet when you go home and see all those things you once had to have. And in a weak moment, we turn them to bread. The temptation to indulge ourselves. And the devil laughs all the way to the bank. Then comes the temptation to prove yourself. Jesus gets taken to the top of the temple and told to jump to prove himself. A little acrobatics, Jesus, to reveal who you really are. And it makes me wonder how often I get told to jump, often by myself, to jump to prove myself. Ever been told to jump? Ever been told to jump? Has the boss ever told you to jump? Say, and you say, how high on the way up? Some get told to jump at home. Some get told to jump at work. Some get told to jump by the lifestyle of the next door neighbor. And it's all a way of trying to prove ourselves. We just can't be ourselves. No, we have to prove ourselves. We will do amazing things just to prove ourselves. Throw yourself off the temple, the devil says to Jesus. And to us, he says, live a frantic, busy life. Endure massive amounts of stress. Gravel before a boss you hate. Work your blood pressure to the point of death. Forget about sleep. It's highly overrated. Ignore your family. Jump. And often we jump. I love the story of the great-grandfather, great-granddaughter of William Howard Taft, who in her elementary school class was asked to write her autobiography. And this is what she came up with. She wrote, my great-grandfather was president of the United States. My father, my grandfather was a US senator. And my father was an ambassador. And I am a brownie. She was who she was, and we are who we are. And God says who you are is a child of God. No other proof needed. Finally comes the temptation in the weak moment to give up on ourselves. That's what the devil asked Jesus. You, know, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you would just bow down before me. If you would just give up the God thing and bow down before me, give up on yourself, cash it in, Jesus. If you can't beat me, join me. Forget the fact that you are the begotten son of God. Forget the fact that God promises never to forsake you. Forget the fact that God promises to empower you even in the weak moment. God is a long way off, Jesus. So give up. That happens more often than we think. Seems every day we're asked to give up on the standard we have for ourselves. Every day we're asked to accept something less for ourselves than what God would hope. Every day we are asked to be what we are not. I visited a friend a while back and my visit with him reminded me of an earlier visit I had with him when he invited me in for lunch in New York City because he was a trader on the floor of the stock exchange and so after lunch we went down to the floor and I followed him on this rather chaotic floor with all the screaming and yelling and the winks and nods. 
It's an amazing experience. Talk about me being far from home. At one point, my friend got pulled aside by another trader. And what ensued, though I could not hear it, I could see it, was a conversation that appeared to be taking on more and more heat. And after a few minutes of heated discussion, my friend returned. What was that all about? I asked, oh, he said, nothing. He was just asking me to cross the line. I said, what line? He said, oh, I don't know, I guess the line between right and wrong. He was asking me to be someone I'm not. Give up on yourself, the devil asked. Will Willimon, professor at Duke University, speaks of when he was in high school. Every time he would leave home to do something at night, you know, go on a date, go to a party, horse around with some friends, his mother would always say farewell with these words. She'd say, Will, don't forget who you are. Willimon writes, you know what she meant. She did not mean that I was in danger of forgetting my name or street address. She meant that alone on a date or in the midst of some party, or in the presence of some strangers, I might forget who I was. I might lose sight of the values with which I had been raised, answer to some alien name, engage in some unaccustomed behavior. Don't forget who you are was her maternal benediction as I left home. Later, Willimon said, to find myself, all I really needed to do was see my reflection in the waters of my baptism. So this is the first Sunday of Lent, never a season high on many hit parades, partly because maybe we've come to know it as a time that we are supposed to give up something, alcohol, dessert, Facebook. Not that there isn't any merit to such practices, there is. But I suppose deeper down, Lent is the invitation to take back something, to take back ourselves, to reclaim the baptismal image, to turn our face toward home and receive again the compassionate gaze of the Father, to remember who we are and whose we are, to find again the God who fills the vacuum, who demands no proof and invites you and me back to ourselves.